Good morning, Village Church. I'm Joshua, one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you all this morning. We're continuing through the book of Acts, and we're going to be in chapter 21 this morning. I know the scripture reading went up to verse 26, but we're going all the way to chapter 23, verse 11. Looking at the beginning of Paul on trial, because that's how we do it at the Village Church. We bait you in with an awesome Easter service, and then the next week it's booyah, two chapters. <laughs> Let's go, because that's how we grow, um, and we love the Bible. There's good reason for us to take such a big chunk together, though, uh, this morning. This passage, we're looking, uh, what we're looking at is a tightly woven account that revolves around Paul's arrest and trial in Jerusalem. In the book of Acts, Luke has been recording the events that formed the early church at a, at a pretty casual pace. But when he gets to this point in the narrative, it slows down to a crawl. And in the text for this morning, Luke dedicates the better part of three chapters to just under 12 days. By comparison, chapters 24 through 26 cover two years. Luke is slowing down because he wants us to see something. We'll see Paul defending himself against accusations and mischaracterations and at times outright slander. The question is, who is Paul? What kind of man is Paul? But, and Luke, but Luke, in three different scenes, shows us exactly the kind of man that Paul is. Before and during Paul's trials, we're going to see him get scrutinized. And all of that's going to reveal some stuff in his character. We're going to see the choices that he makes. We'll see him choose unity over liberty, witness over safety, and God's justice over his, re, his own retaliation. In short, we'll see Paul walking in the freedom of not having to be only about himself. We're covering a lot of ground. So we're going to move pretty quickly through the narrative sections and put down some roots in a few different places just to start to soak some things up. So let's get started in verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem and the brothers received us gladly, on the following day Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified God. And they, said, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. So Paul finally arrives in, to Jerusalem and is greeted by the brothers. The next day, he has an audience with James and the elders of the Jerusalem church. And he gives them an account of all the good things God was doing abroad among the Gentiles. The elders hear this, and they rejoice and talk about all the good things that God was doing there in Jerusalem among the Jewish people. Thousands of Jewish people had been converted, but there's something interesting noted about these people in verse 20. It says that these Jewish people were still, quote, zealous for the law. Meaning that although they placed their faith and their trust in Jesus for salvation, they were still very much invested in the law and the traditions that they grew up in. Now to be clear, they weren't looking to the law of Moses to make themselves right before God. They trusted in Jesus alone for that. But they still wanted to walk in the religious observances and traditions that the law had laid down. They held to the dietary restrictions, they kept the Sabbath, they participated in the feast, and they held on to their customs. And in that way, they were zealous for the law of Moses. And this sets them up for the issue that we're going to see in verse 21. 
Let's read it. It says, And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. There were rumors being circulated about Paul that were saying that he was abroad telling the Jewish people that they can depart from the law of Moses and all of their culture, telling them not to circumcise their children. And it created a lot of suspicion about Paul and his intentions. But the elders in Jerusalem have a solution. Let's read it. It says, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we, sent, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. So the way they decided to deal with this was to connect Paul with four men that were taking a Jewish vow and for Paul to pay for them to cut their hair as part of their vow. All this is going to happen in the temple so it will be in public and it should put to rest any suspicion that Paul was against Jewish custom. Now, to understand how Paul receives this idea, we have to understand how Paul views these customs. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, he tells us that circumcision or uncircumcision avails nothing. There is no inherent benefit in circumcision, nor is there any inherent benefit in any of the Jewish customs. They don't give them any advantage before God. But in Romans 14, he tells us that in them there is also no harm. This makes the question of whether or not a believing Jew continues to walk in Jewish customs a personal choice that they would make according to their own conscience, which gave Paul the freedom to do them or to not do them. He could do whatever was most helpful for him in the situation that he was in. And that's why he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. This explains why in verse 26 we see Paul submit to the elders' plan in doing exactly what they ask. Now this is interesting because we know that if Paul wanted to, he could have dismantled every single reason for any Jewish convert to continue walking in the customs of their own. He could have demolished any rumors that they had heard. Paul was in no way anti-Jewish culture or custom. Acts 16 tells us that Paul instructed Timothy, a grown man, to be circumcised. Acts 18 tells us about how Paul, of his own accord, took a Jewish vow. So the claim that Paul was anti-Jewish custom was ridiculous, and he could have argued and refuted the entire idea. But he didn't. In a move of humility and deference, he laid down his liberty in Christ for the sake of unity. When Paul's sound theology is paired with his humble spirit, he felt the freedom to accommodate the people around him on an open-handed issue. He felt the freedom to not fight every fight. We know for certain that if this was an issue that threatened the integrity of the gospel, Paul would have driven a stake in the ground because we've seen him do it before. 
What we're seeing here is the humility and freedom Paul had to accommodate the brothers in Jerusalem for the sake of fellowship. Now, this is important for us to see. Because give me 10 minutes of a conversation with anyone in this room, and I guarantee you we'll find something that we disagree on. And in the midst of all these differing opinions or perspectives or approaches or stances, one way we maintain fellowship is by keeping non-essential issues as non-essential. Here at the Village Church, we have a set of values. Two of those values are biblical inerrancy and gospel centrality. We have driven our stake in the ground on anything that challenges either one of these things. We are close-handed and immovable on things where God has spoken clearly in his word. Striving to keep the main thing the main thing. Another one of our values is humility. We want to be a humble church, not needlessly waging war over every peripheral issue. Striving to keep the secondary things secondary. The first fight I had with my wife was over the fact that I thought that she used too much butter in her cooking. <laughs> I was young and stupid because there could never be too much cookie butter in anyone's cooking. <laughs> Just makes everything better. But we only had that fight once. And over 10 years, we've never fought about butter again. Because over time, two things happen. We've gotten more mature, and with that maturity came perspective. Maturity and perspective to be able to separate the big things from the not-so-big things. Maturity and perspective helped me realize that I don't have to die on every hill. And if she wants to listen to country music in the car, I can just let her. Because <laughs> not every disagreement needs to end in a fight. I can keep the unimportant issues unimportant all for the sake of unity. And this is what we're seeing in Paul and in the church in Jerusalem. And it's going to be part of how we preserve the unity here in this church in Irvine with maturity and perspective to know what hills we should be and willing to die on and which ones aren't worth breaking fellowship over. To be fair, that's not always an easy distinction to make. It, it, it does take discernment. But maybe a mark of spiritual and theological maturity that we should be working towards is knowing where to draw the lines between big deals and little ones so we don't needlessly break fellowship where we don't have to. And that's what we see Paul doing here. He submits to the plan of the elders, but this landed him in a whole other conflict, and it kicks off what is one of the craziest stories in the New Testament. Let's jump in, verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple as and defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. 
Here we see the people accusing Paul of two things. First, Paul is accused of being opposed to the Jewish people, temple, and law. And secondly, and probably more significantly, he's accused of being Trophimus, a Gentile, into the temple. Now, to understand what happens next in the narrative, you need to be familiar with two features of temple landscape. The outer walls mark the entry into the temple grounds. Just inside the outer walls was what was an open space that was called the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles were free to be in here in Rome. However, there was a four and a half foot wall, that, that, a stone wall that divided the outer court of the Gentiles from the inner court of the temple. Now, this wall had signs, some written in Latin, some written in Greek that said, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. Two of these stones have been found, and I think we have a picture of one of them. The prohibition of Gentiles in the inner court was such a serious matter that the Jewish people had the authorization to kill any Gentile trespasser on sight. The second feature of the temple that's going to be important is a fortress that was attached to the outer wall called the Antonia Fortress. It was elevated, but it was separated from the court of Gentiles by just two flights of stairs. The structure remains have been found, and they actually built an elementary school on it. These archaeological finds actually corroborate the events that Luke records here. Paul was falsely accused of bringing Trophimus into the inner court. And verse 30 tells us that all the city was stirred up. They grab Paul and drag him back out to the court of the Gentiles and start to beat him to death. The tribune, which was the the Roman commanding officer stationed in the fortress, hears about the commotion, uh, brings some soldiers, and rush down to the court of the Gentiles. The mob sees the soldiers, and they stop beating Paul. Then the tribune arrests Paul and binds him in chains, just like Agabus the prophet said would happen. There's so much commotion that he still can't figure out what's going on, so he orders the soldiers to take Paul back to the barracks for questioning. Seeing that Paul was being removed from the situation, the mob goes nuts and begins again to try and kill him. So they have to carry him up the flights of stairs to the Roman barracks. So at this point, in my mind, Paul is just like crowd surfing like he's at a Green Day concert up the, up the stairs into the barracks of the Romans. And as he's almost there, he tells them to stop. The tribune, shocked that Paul spoke Greek, because he had assumed that Paul was an Egyptian leader of a band of assassins called the Sicarii. The Sicarii translates as dagger men. They called them this because they were a group of assassins that hid daggers in their cloaks and would kill high-profile Romans and Roman sympathizers, assassins creed style, in the middle of the crowd and just blend in and escape. So Paul is mistaken to be in, in, in league with these people. Paul says, I'm, I'm not orchestrating hits on Romans and Jewish people. I just want to talk to the people. And the tribune gives him permission. And Paul gives us his defense that we see in the first 21 verses of chapter 22. And there are at least two points that Paul is trying to make. Remember, the accusation against Paul at this point is that he was against the Jewish people. 
So the first thing he's doing in his defense is showing that his message is not anti-Jewish. And he does it in the form of a testimony. He opens his defense with what at the time would have been a massive Jewish flex. He was born in Tarsus. He grew up in Jerusalem. He was educated by a respected rabbi, and he was zealous for the law. He's showing them that culturally and ethnically, he was just like them. But the similarities didn't stop there. He opposed the early church, persecuting Christians, arresting them, and throwing them in prison. Even as an opponent of the church, Paul was still just like them. The thrust of this being that in almost every respect, Paul was one of them and not against them. But in this testimony are two details Paul used to point this Jewish crowd to, to something greater than the faith that they once shared. The first being that he saw the resurrected Lord and he calls him by name. It was Jesus of Nazareth. Then he notes he was commissioned by a man named Ananias who was a devout and respectable Jewish man. Listen to what uh, Ananias told him in verse 14. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. The reason Paul is conveying to them what Ananias said was to show that he was appointed to his mission by the very same God that they served, the God of their fathers. Further, this God appointed Paul to know his will and to see his righteous one. This title is the title for Jesus used by Peter in Acts 3 and by Stephen in Acts 7. It's an allusion to Jesus as the promised Messiah, the one this very crowd was waiting for. And in verse 17, Paul tells them what their Messiah told them to do. Let's read it. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. At the end of Paul's defense, Paul's defense, he says that he was called to bring the message that he despised to the people that he despised. This creates two bookends, one at the beginning and one at the end of Paul's defense that could not be further apart. Paul opens with how zealous he was for the law and persecuting Christians. And by the end, he shows us how he is now a witness for the Lord and the faith that he was trying to eradicate. Showing us just how drastic of a change there was between who he was and who he is. And in between these bookends is the turning point. It was the call of God that radically reoriented his life. Paul is using his own testimony to show the progression of how he went from being like them to someone totally different. And now... This isn't just a defense against the accusation of Paul being anti-Jewish. It's an appeal to Paul's Jewish brothers to embrace the full revelation of the religion that they're zealous for. Because when Paul looked into the faces of the violent mob, he saw himself. He would have been them had it not been for the grace of God. To Paul, this isn't just an, ir an irrational mob to be escaped. It's a lost crowd to be saved. 
He wasn't defending himself to save his life. If that was the case, he would have just continued crowd surfing into the Roman barracks. But he laid down his safety for the sake of his opportunity to witness. He wasn't defending himself to save his life. He was defending himself to save theirs. Testifying to the plan of God to include Gentiles and the power of God to turn enemies to friends. Because Paul had experienced both firsthand. I just want to, I want to pause here. Because Paul does this, this thing with his testimony where his, his argument is essentially, if God can take a person like me, uh, violently and vehemently opposed to the gospel, and then turn him into a missionary, he can change anyone. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 through 16, Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I don't know what things some of the people in this room are coming out of. But some of you might be coming out of some dark stuff. Some of you might still be in some dark stuff. In the middle of all that, this text tells us that Paul would look at you at your worst, at all the mess that you've done and all the mess that you've made, and call it amateur. It's just junior varsity. And if God reached down to get him, you can rest assured that he can reach down to get you. All of the dirt that you did, it didn't matter. All the stuff that you walked in, none of it is too much. You are never outside of the reach of God. You've never gone too far to be pulled in. And if you don't believe that, you can look at Paul as evidence. His transformation is evidence of the loving, rescuing, restoring God that we serve. And that's the good news that he's offering to everyone in this room right now. Salvation and forgiveness of even the worst sin you've committed because it's all been paid for. Paul, before a violent mob, chose to testify instead of escape. He chose witness over safety. Because I think he saw in him, I think he saw himself in them, so he was moved with compassion. And he knows the power of God, so he was moved with boldness. And with those two things, it's much easier to see why he chose to witness over staying safe. And my hope is that we grow in confidence in those two things so that when given the choice, we would choose to witness instead of staying safe. That we would have the freedom to choose not all, it's a freedom to, to, to not always choose the things that keep us safe. That we would be ready to take risks in the confidence that the Jesus that sent Paul sent us. But as, as good as Paul's testimony sounded to us, it didn't have its intended effect on the audience. Chaos breaks out when Paul says the Gentiles are included in the people of God. The tribune, seeing that there's no way he's going to get to the bottom of what Paul's going on with Paul and the crowd in the same place, takes Paul into the Roman barracks to, quote, examine him with flogging. The plan was to beat Paul until he told them why he was ang the crowd was angry. But Paul had something up his sleeve. Let's read it starting in verse 25. 
But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune, was, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he bound him. Here, Paul is using his Roman citizenship for protection. And in this time, being a Roman citizen, a citizen had benefits. One of those benefits, specific, uh, specifically helpful for Paul in this moment, is that he was entitled to Roman due process. They couldn't just bind him and beat, beat him unless he was convicted of a crime. And this leads us to a bit of an awkward exchange between Paul and the tribune, where the tri tribune says, well, I, I bought my citizenship through bribery, assuming that Paul did the same. When in reality, there was no unlawfulness in the way that Paul had acquired his citizenship because he inherited it at birth. In every way, Luke is showing us that Paul's character is above board. So since the tribune was unable to examine Paul with flogging, he has to do something else to get to the bottom of what caused the disturbance. So the next day, he commands the Jewish council to meet, and he presents Paul. Let's pick it up in, in chapter 23, verse 1. And looking intently at the council... Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? This is a direct defense from Paul to his accusers. He is saying that he, in his conscience, is convinced that he has done absolutely no wrong. He's convinced that he's completely innocent of all charges. And to the high priest, Paul is saying his conscience is clear. To the high priest, Paul saying his conscience is clear, is so out of touch with reality, it's insulting. So insulting that he orders him to be punched in the face. This is not an open-handed slap. The word for strike here indicates that it was either, either a closed fist or a club across his face. This prompts an instant response from Paul, saying, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Put that one in the back pocket. Paul has just publicly called the man in the highest office of the Jewish people a hypocrite. So let's, let's just pause and review the, the past couple days for Paul. He arrived in Jerusalem and is asked to come out of pocket to pay the cost for some people to perform their vow just to dismiss some rumors. In the temple, when he's finishing the vow, he's falsely accused of bringing a Gentile into the inner court and then jumped by a mob that almost beats him to death. Then, being a Roman citizen, he's illegally arrested and almost flogged for information that he's been trying to give the entire time. Then he's put before the council and punched in the face for saying that he was innocent. Paul is in this sea of rumors and false accusation and mistaken identities and injustices and violence. And his reply to his latest round of abuse is, God will strike you. And the reason that stands out to me is because he doesn't say, 
I will strike you. He's leaving retribution to God. It's shocking because when treated unfairly to this degree, we're compelled towards retaliation because we want our own justice. Even though Paul was pushed as much as he'd been pushed, that's still not the attitude that we're seeing in him. He knew Ananias was in the wrong, but he was free of the need to retaliate. Paul walked in what he wrote to the Romans. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Paul laid down retaliation for the sake of God's justice, and it leads us to this question. When we are scrutinized and attacked, are we willing to entrust justice to God and lay down our own reputation, our pride, and retribution, and let him bring the justice that we're longing for? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Of course he will. No, don't get me wrong. I know firsthand that, that these things sting. But the balm on those wounds is not my own retribution. It's trusting in the perfect justice of God to be delivered in his timing and in his way. This response from Paul, however, was not without fault. And we see the issue with his response in verse 4. Those standing by said, would you revile God's high priest? See, as an authority figure among God's people, the high priest was to be held in honor, regardless of the character of the man that occupied the office. In this instance, Paul was wrong. Even if, his, even if it was out of ignorance, he was still wrong. So Paul realizes his mistake and agrees that he was out of line by quoting and applying to himself Exodus chapter 22, verse 28. You shall not revile God. You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. Paul was quick to own his wrong. And I think this is important because it keeps us from seeing ourselves only as the victim when we're mistreated. Yet Paul was treated unjustly. But that didn't stop him from seeing what he did wrong in the middle of it. What I've learned is that just because I'm on the receiving end of an offense doesn't automatically mean that I'm without fault. The sin of others can't keep us from seeing the sin in ourselves. And I think Paul is giving an example of the right way to endure wrongdoing. is with our eyes to the future justice of God and a close watch on ourselves. Let's move on. Verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the decision became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So at this point, Paul probably realized he, prob he wasn't going to get a fair shake from the council. 
So he changes his tactic to divide and conquer. Luke mentions that there are two camps that are, are making up the council. The Sadducees that do not believe in resurrection or anything spiritual, and the Pharisees that do. So Paul, being a resourceful missionary, plays on that distinction by using his past to align himself with the Pharisees and just throws an ideological bomb into the room. If you, if you were to walk into one of the classrooms upstairs, poke your head into one of the classes, and yell to the kids, mint chocolate chip ice cream is gross, it would take all of three seconds before they're at each other's throats. Mint chocolate chip ice cream, cats, and Tootsie Rolls are all topics so divisive that they're willing to fight over them. And that's what we're seeing happening here in the council. The question of the resurrection of the dead is so controversial to them that a fight breaks out on the spot. And in the middle of the fight, Luke writes something that he wants, us to, catch, uh, that he wants to catch our attention. During the chaos, some of the Pharisees say that there's no fault in Paul. These scribes are the mouthpiece for the narrator, and through them, Luke is telling us that Paul, even when pressed and scrutinized, is still found by his opponents to be innocent. Well, Paul's divide-and-conquer tactic worked a little too well, and then the violence once again turns to Paul. And once again, he's saved by the Roman tribune and taken back to the barracks before he's torn apart. And that night, Jesus appeared to Paul. So let's finish up in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also, so you must testify also in Rome. So at this rate, Paul has to be wondering whether or not he's going to make it out of Jerusalem alive. With all the uncertainty about what's going to happen next, Jesus appears and puts it all to rest, saying that just as he testified in Jerusalem, he must testify in Rome. This is a divine imperative. If Jesus says something has to happen, that thing, whatever it is, will happen. It's a certainty that Paul will survive all of this because Paul has to make it to Rome, and Jesus will see to it. But the subtle implication here is that as bad as things are now, they're not going to get much better. If we look a little closer at what Jesus says in verse 11, we see that he first tells Paul that he needs to keep up his courage. Why? Why does Paul need to keep up his courage? The word for tells us why. He says, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The hint that Jesus is giving is that the suffering that accompanied his testimony in Jerusalem will also accompany his testimony on his way and in Rome. So Paul's going to need courage. For Paul, there isn't going to be a miraculous escape, escape this time. No more earthquakes that, that open prison doors and, calls, and cause chains to fall off. Paul was in prison, and he's going to stay in custody for the remainder of Acts. He is no longer a free man. And it's sobering because it reminds us that sometimes God doesn't rescue us from the troubles we find ourselves in. One commentator said it this way. The Lord's reassurance must take the place of miraculously opening doors. The divine power that rescues him from prison has become a powerful presence 
that enables the witness to endure an imprisonment that lasts for years. God's answer to every problem we have isn't always a divine rescue. Sometimes it's divine courage and endurance and perseverance. When we go through things that are hard, when we go through things that are difficult, maybe the will of God isn't to just remove you from everything that causes discomfort. Maybe his will is for us to learn to cling to the God of all comfort and persevere. This morning we've seen Paul lay down his personal freedom in Christ for the sake of unity. He laid down his personal safety for the sake of witness. He laid down his own justice for the sake of allowing God to execute his. That's a lot of stuff to lay down. And the question I asked myself as I thought through this is how? How was he okay with all of this? Because it feels like he's losing a lot. I think one reason is because in each of these instances, Paul settled into the fact that he was part of something bigger than himself. He was part of a bigger community than himself. He was part of a bigger mission than himself. He was on a bigger timeline that extended beyond his life. And in that came the true freedom to not be bound to our compulsion to only serve, protect, and defend ourselves. Because it's not just about us. And this is our good news for this morning. We can lay down our personal preferences, our personal safety, and our personal vindication because Jesus has saved us from being enslaved to ourselves. Listen, your life was not meant to revolve around you. And to spend your life catering to yourself is a tragedy. Now, there's nothing distinctively Christian about that message, though, right? I can go and make some T-shirts that say, your life was not meant to revolve around you. David could probably make them pretty dope. It would go, right? I think people would like it. I could put on Instagram, your life wasn't meant to revolve around you. And hashtag Habitat for Humanity. Get a few likes. It'd be cool. This is not distinctively Christian. What makes this distinctively Christian is when the futility of a self-centered life meets with the grace found at the cross of Jesus Christ. And we respond like Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. So it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And we lay down our lives for the one that laid down his own. And now we're cooking with hot oil. The gospel not only saves you, it connects you to something bigger. A community of more people than you. A purpose beyond yourself. A defender bringing a better justice that you can ever hope to achieve. What we see here in these little stories of Paul is the freedom to live life for the things that really matter. Not spending our lives bound to things that only serve ourselves. That's the freedom that we have in Christ when we lay ourselves down. Let's just pray and pause that we walk in it. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and I pray for each of our souls, for each of our hearts. I pray for, for the things that we hold tightly to, Father, that you would just begin to loosen our grip. I pray that, that knowing that we can entrust our, our, our safety, our justice, our comfort to you, that we would be all the more encouraged to just lay them down for the sake of the brothers, for your mission. Father, I thank you that, that, that we can call out to you in our, in our deepest times of need. I'm thankful that, that your arm has never been too short to save. So I pray, Lord, that we would have an introspective eye to, to, to see the things that we might be clinging to too, too tightly or too closely. And that by your grace, you would begin just to loosen our grip. And I thank you for your goodness, and I thank you for your grace. In the Son's name we pray. Amen.